I want to kind of start with the end of the sermon today, just a bit. We're going to have communion in just a few moments together. And Good morning, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at MetroLife Church. And, and I want to start sort of at the end so that you know that we're going, but I, I wonder if even in that song we, we hear a little bit of what I hear regularly throughout the week, what I even, what I feel during the week at times. How long, oh Lord? You ever wondered? You ever had that moment of, how long, oh Lord? I have. It, I think it kept Stephanie and I up Thursday night until about 1.30 in the morning, just talking with each other, unexpectedly. We'd been, we'd been watching something on TV together, and it was heartbreaking. And in conversations that I'll have with many throughout the church, I just hear this regular refrain, how long, O Lord? And we know where it comes from. We know it comes from Psalm 13, and so we're going to get there in a little bit. But I just want to acknowledge at the outset that that is a very real heart's cry for us who have been created for the glory of God as we see so much tearing down and destroying what God intended to be glorious. It's an understandable question. It's, it's actually the right question to ask. It wasn't intended to be that way in the first place, so it's natural that those of us who are image bearers of God would ask the question, how long, O Lord? And I think that Daniel 9 begins to point us to the answer to that question. Perhaps through this series as, as we've been there, and if you can go ahead and turn in your Bible to Daniel chapter 9 if you're not already there or on your app. Perhaps as we've been going through this series, and if you've been here throughout the series, and you understand that one of the recurring themes has been the sovereignty of God, even as I was just praying that God rules above all other gods, that he is the one who sets the earth in motion and then providentially is the one who keeps it in its place. He is a sovereign God, but when you think about God's sovereignty and you think about the themes of his faithfulness to his people that we see in Daniel chapter, uh, actually throughout the book of Daniel, you may find yourself wondering in the midst of sin and sufferings, how should we pray then? In the midst of sin and suffering for ourselves or for others, how should we pray? Or Why? Do we have to pray? If God is sovereign, if all of these things are under his rule and his control, why is it that we have to pray? I think that's also a great question. Because there's a lot in Daniel that we could read and kind of misunderstand and begin to think that if I just live up to all that Daniel was, if I just do, like, like Daniel's life is the formula for the life of the believer, if I just do those things, then God will be sovereign and faithful in my circumstances as well. And we begin to read into Scripture things that Scripture doesn't actually reveal. Thinking that we have to live up to some kind of standard for our lives. And I understand that temptation, but it's helpful for us to remember at the outset today that all of Scripture points not to ourselves or to these individual heroes of the faith as they may be known throughout church history, all of Scripture points to Jesus. James, 
or excuse me, John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus says of the Scripture, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. He's speaking to that temptation of, if I just do it the right way, I'll get the right result. And it is they, he goes on to say, that bear witness about me. Perfect Savior, the perfect time. And so Jesus' words inform how it is that we should read the Old Testament, how it is that we should read different types of passages. There's a beauty of Scripture in all of the genres that are contained herein, and in the historical narratives, the prophecy, the poetry, all of the different types of writing that all point to a Savior, Jesus Christ. They all point to Him. They reveal our need for Him. And this understanding is the basis even of our understanding of the purpose of our very lives. To point to Jesus. So I think today we're going to see in Daniel chapter 9 that God's people pray with earnest humility, confident in the righteous and faithful plans of God. So let's begin reading together Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahareus, a descent, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke it in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. Thus, to us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, our princes, and to our fathers because we have sinned against you. To the Lord God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of our Lord by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice and the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. Under the whole heaven... There has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entered the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, 
The Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O God, listen to the prayer of your servant and his pleas for mercy, and for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we did not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. I think that we see here in this first part of Daniel chapter 9 that God's people are called to pray in earnest humility. If we were to summarize the prayer that is captured here in Daniel at the beginning of chapter 9, I think that we could say that it's an earnest prayer. What do we mean by that? Well, it's ardent in its pursuit of God. It's, it's warm and eager and zealous all at the same time, right? I mean, Daniel is making some pretty bold claims about who God is. He's making some pretty bold confessions about who the people of God have become and continue to be. There's an intent to the prayer. There's an intenseness, an importance, a seriousness about what Daniel is praying about. Daniel is praying in earnest. It's not flippant. It's not flyby. John Owen would go on to say about a prayer life in the, in the life of the believer, what an individual is in secret on his knees before God that he is and no more. Our prayers matter. Earnest prayers matter. Now, how, how is it that we pray in earnest? Well, I think that we see one of the first things coming out of Daniel chapter 9 is that an earnest prayer is going to flow out of the study of Scripture. We see this in the first couple of verses, that Daniel's not only a man of prayer, we've seen this actually throughout the book of uh, Daniel, but he is a man of the word of the Lord. Notice that he references a contemporary prophet to himself, and that's the prophet Jeremiah. And captured in Jeremiah is a framework for us to understand today's passage. I have it for the screen, so you don't have to turn there. Jeremiah 25, 12 says this. This is what Daniel would have been reading. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. And we've seen how at the end of these prophecies often we see the triumph of the Lord and his kingdom and we see the laying to waste the laying aside the desolation of those who are enemies of the Lord and we're reminded that there really are two ways that we can live aren't we we can live for the things of the Lord or we can live for the things of the world one promises an everlasting kingdom and a covenant that is everlasting and the other promises death 
we have a choice to make. So we pray in earnest when we pray from our own study of Scripture. We pray in earnest when we are focused on the presence of God. Now, where do I get that? I get that actually from the beginning of verse 3, where it says, Then I turn my face to the Lord God. Now, it may be simple for us in just kind of a casual reading of this to think, oh, okay, so I, I, I'm, I'm looking to God instead of my circumstances. Yes, that's a, that's a great way to look at it. But I think it might miss a little bit of the emphasis put in this passage in the original language. But let me illustrate it this way. We all know or have seen or have been that toddler in training that can't quite seem to give focus to their parent. We've been there, right? Maybe some of us are still that way, myself included at times, where we just can't turn our face. And if we do finally get like the gentle mom hands on the cheeks where it's like, stop, what do our eyes still do? Maybe we're the breathless toddler that just can't quite get the words out and so we have to just inhale our words and so we can just never stop and we're just always, we need the Lord to do. We all know or have seen that kid, right? Many of us act the same way in our faith when we pray. We come to God with these breathless prayers because we need him to do something and we just need him to intervene, but all we're doing is not looking to him. We're just looking to the circumstances still. We're talking to him as if he's not there. And Daniel actually sets an example for us to turn our faith to him. Now you may think, why is that important? All throughout the Old Testament we see in prophecies that it is God who is going to set his face against a people as a part of punishment. We have the privilege of being able to turn and look to him. We're going to see in just a moment how it is that Jesus allows us to do that fully. But I think it's important for us to recognize the presence of God is at all places, in all times, in every way, everywhere. And we can turn our face to Him in prayer. I don't care where you are. I don't care what the moment of the day. This morning I, I got up and left the house a little bit early. I, I don't know why. I was just kind of craving a little bit of old school. And, and so I went to Castleberry Breakfast Club, which used to be a, a a habit of mine before Sundays, and, and things have changed. It's been a while since I've been there, and when I first got there, one of my favorite servers, Miss Henny, was not there. I was super disappointed, because Miss Henny has always been, well, let's just call her a reality check. Miss Henny's always been a reality check. And about 15 minutes into my time there, she walked in. It was wonderful. But what she started to share with me was yet another story of how long, O oh Lord. And so as we were parting ways, as, as, as the restaurant was getting busier and as we we're parting ways, what am I saying to her? I'm going to be praying for you. But the whole time I was sitting there eating, I'm praying for her. She has responsibility. She has things that are going on. But I just realized what a privilege to be able to just sit here right now in this moment and turn my face to the Lord. I can't help Henny. But I can cry out to the one who can. If you've been in those moments, it's kind of what informs that question of how long, O Lord, isn't it? What are you doing? Even in asking that question, you are turning to Him. So we're not afraid of the questions. We're afraid of who we look to to answer them. Let's look to the right one and not be distracted and be focused to the Lord 
focused on the Lord in prayer. So I think that that helps inform us what it looks like to pray in earnest. So what about humble prayers? Well, humble prayers, verses 4 through 14, go on to show us that they are characterized by an honest and full confession of sin. Whether this is an individual or whether this is a nation or a corporate prayer of confession before the Lord. Daniel, in verses 4 through 14, starts by saying that he is the one who is praying, but we, including himself, in the corporate confession of sin. We are the ones who have fallen short. See, Scripture, again, once, once again informs these prayers of where it is that we are to put our confidence. It's not in our actions. It's not in our ability to live up to things. We put our confidence in the one who provided his word for us who provides this ability to draw near in the first place. So humble prayers are including of confession. They also are grounded not in our character, but in the character of God. Humble prayers are grounded not in our character, but in the character of God. We see this in verses 15 through 19. And understanding the character of God is essential for our faith. Understanding God as Father and holy, righteous ruler is essential for our faith. But I think that we at times tend to sway from one extreme to another in our understanding of God's character. And oftentimes that sway back and forth to the extremes comes because of our circumstances. We begin to view God in light of our circumstances and not our circumstances in light of our God. And it may just seem like a very mild turn of phrase, a mild spinning of something, a a mild shift of focus, but it has a radical effect on the heart of the follower of God. When we view our circumstances in light of the character of God, it is stable and secure. There's nothing in this world that can can remove the love that God has for us. We're going to see that in just a moment. But Daniel calls out that God is both righteous and merciful. He is righteous and merciful as he's acknowledging his character. They exist in the same person. They exist perfectly in the person of God. And so we look to him as both righteous and merciful, but we cast ourselves on the mercy of God. We cast ourselves on his mercy because we all fall short of his righteousness and his glory. So we learn here in the midst of this that our prayers should be God-centered but people-focused. You may wonder why is it that I would say that? Well, let's look at verse 9 or verse 19 again in Daniel chapter 9. O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, pay attention and act on whose behalf? Act on behalf of the people. Delay not for your own sake, my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. He's asking him to act on behalf of his people for the glory of his name. So our prayers should be God-centered and yet at the same time people-focused. Perhaps you've experienced that as we've been going through our Lent devotional, Who's Your One? And you're wondering about who it is that you're going to invite to our Easter services, and maybe you're praying for them very intentionally, and and maybe God has opened doors, and maybe that's not yet happened. But I think it's important that this is how we, we remember to pray for one another. 
We remember to pray for one another because we want to have our prayers to be centered on who God is. But the, that the overflow of that, that the, that the outworking of that would be focused on the people that we're praying for. I think it's important in our community groups that this informs how it is that we pray for one another. In, in smaller discipleship settings, and in, in all of the ministries that happen throughout the church, this is what prayer should look like. This is what prayer should look like when we gather at 9, uh, 9.30 on a Sunday morning in the chapel. That it should be centered on who God is and focused on people called by His name. The people that He's created. I, I wonder about, too, perhaps you saw in our new bulletin today, we include a TruthQuest question. It's something that we do to kind of highlight what it is that our children are learning in children's ministry. And even just this week, I love how it, in, excuse me, in this month coming up in April, the question is, what is a miracle? And the answer is this, a miracle is something that God does that usually cannot be done so that we can know that he is all-powerful. What is that? God-centered. But the effects of it are focused on his people. Psalm 77, 14 says this, You are the God who works wonders. You revealed your strength among the peoples. You see how much our faith is called to be God-centered, but others-focused. It's absolutely a part of who we are. As I was studying over these last couple of weeks, I came across this quote from Daniel Aiken. I just want to share it with us real quick, just kind of remind us where this moves from what Daniel was looking forward to, what we're looking back to in the book of Daniel, where he says this. The prayer of Moses draws my admiration. The prayer of Daniel inspires my emulation. The prayers of Jesus move me to adoration. See, Jesus' prayers led him to experience what Daniel 9, 7 says will be a public shame in our place. Jesus' prayers were heard by God because his prayers led God to forgive us. Hebrews chapter 7 verse, 20, uh, verse 25 says that Christ is able to save completely those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for us. So hearing the prayers of his own son, God did this. He paid attention and he acted. He raised Jesus from the dead. We're going to see this more in the weeks ahead. And then Christ ascends on high and continues to intercede for you and I today. It makes it a lot easier to think about our prayers being centered on who God is and what he's done. And yet focused, not even on our own circumstances, focused on what it is that we're praying for others that God may intervene. Continue to read together. Daniel chapter 9, verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word 
and understand the vision. We're going to just pause there because I believe that what we begin to understand is that we can pray knowing that God hears our prayers. We can pray knowing that God hears our prayers. Now, there was certainly a rhythm to Daniel's life. We've seen this throughout the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 6, we learn about his like wildly toxic workplace. But the rhythms that Daniel's life were built around and prayer being a part of that almost led him to death. But it never changed what he centered his life on. Why is that? Because Daniel prays knowing God hears his prayer. Now, is that because Daniel was like this this uber Christian? This uber follower of Christ, the one who was like, we're all supposed to be exactly like Daniel. No. I'm certain that there are many of Daniel's prayers that are not captured in the book of Daniel. Many that went unanswered. Those are not recorded for us. What's recorded for us is it didn't change the fact that he would pray to God knowing he heard his prayer. It didn't change that at all. And so we realize that in the life of the believer, waiting is not wanting. There is an active faith to our waiting. God instantly hears even if his answers are delayed. We are not put in queue. We are not triaged by importance. God instantly hears our prayer. Maybe even the one that you're saying in your own head right now, I'm not sure I can pray that because I'm not certain that he'd hear. By the way, he knows those thoughts and those motives as well. And he loves you. He instantly hears and knows, even if his answers are delayed. Thank you, sir. That was the strangest role reversal I've experienced. God loves not only prayers, God loves his people. And out of his love, he pours out insight and understanding to them through prayer. You know, earlier in the series, I mentioned that Daniel and his friends weren't going to let Babylon get into their hearts. This passage reveals that the boys had been removed from their land as the chosen people of God. But God had not been, re- been removed from the very center of their hearts. Now, why might I say that? Well, a reference in verse 21, the evening sacrifice. In Babylon, Daniel would not have been able to participate in the evening sacrifice for some decades at the time that this prophecy is captured for us. This prayer is captured for us. He wouldn't have participated in the evening sacrifice in some time. So again, it's easy in a, in a kind of a casual reading of the word to just think, oh yeah, well that, that was what was going on. That was, that was kind of like back then. No, that actually wasn't going on. But for Daniel, it still was the center of his life. He oriented the things of life and his responsibilities, even in the kingdom, around the things of God. So in that way, he does set an example for us. Because out of the love of God, 
he knew that he was going to receive insight and understanding through prayer. Let's continue to read. Seventy weeks are decreed, this is Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares in a moat but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood and To the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come the one who makes desolate until the decree end is poured out on the desolator. Got it? Let's pray. What do we do with these verses? How do we understand these? Maybe you're like me and you failed high school algebra. Wait until you get to apocalyptic timelines. Trig's got nothing on that. What do we do with these verses? Well, we walk through them humbly. We walk through them humbly. We, we focus on the things that are plain so that we can understand what the main things are for us today. See, there is an already not yet reality in this prophecy. I mentioned it earlier. We are looking back to this prophecy. Daniel is looking forward to this. But even last week we realized that at the end of that, Daniel knows that there is a a rejoicing that will come in the midst of this moment, but then there are desolations that will follow and follow and follow. I think it is that there are three or four different views on how these passages can be understood. Even the understanding of days and weeks in the original language can get very murky. Somebody described it as the mire of Old Testament prophecy, just those few verses that we just read through together. So we approach humbly. But I think that we can, even in the midst of mystery, we can also know that there are certainties that Scripture points to that we can all agree on, like this. All of Scripture and Daniel 9.24 point to this, that in time, God will deal with sin. God will deal with sin. See, the, the text is predicting the coming of the Messiah. And he's the one who's going to abolish sin and establish an everlasting righteousness by being himself cut off, executed on a Roman cross. And God promised that he would do that in one of the most amazing and simultaneously confusing prophecies in all of Scripture. I mean, during the 77s, that might be a way that most scholars would kind of summarize these. During the 77s, six things are going to occur. That's clear, right? Well, rebellion will be done. That falling short, that's going to be done. Sin will come to an end. Thirdly, atonement for iniquity will take place. Fourth, everlasting righteousness will be brought in. Vision and prophecy all summed up in one person. In the most holy place, or the holy one, will be anointed in our place. 
I mean, you, maybe you're hearing it already. This points to Jesus. Looking back, this points to Jesus. Because in his time, God sends Messiah Jesus and he judges his people based on his actions. See, up to this point in Daniel chapter 7, we understood Christ as the Son of Man. In Daniel chapter 8, he was revealed as the Prince of Princes. And now in Daniel 9, we're introduced to the Anointed One. The Only One. James Boyce on this passage says this, By whatever set of calculations one makes, the point is that by the end of 69 weeks of years, or shortly after, the great work of the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ for sin should be completed. That's what's coming. Atonement. And in his time, verse 27 shows us, God destroys his enemies. At the end of the, verse 27, it says this, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. There is a time coming when he will wreak havoc no more. And the kingdom of God will reign in the fullness of his glory. And you and I are invited into that through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. And I don't think we can close it any better than that this morning. The anointed one's covenant is everlasting with us as his people. Sacrifice and offering have come to an end because the perfect sacrifice has been made through Christ's blood for our redemption. And the end is poured out on the desolator. So what do we do? Well, Daniel 8 and 9 have shown us this. We work and we wait. We study the scriptures and we pray. We serve and we hope because the plan is in place the clock is ticking the anointed ruler is on his way